Hello, 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 and welcome to Canadian Made. My name's Olivia, and on this podcast, we go behind the scenes of the Canadian entertainment industry to learn how the stories get made and the people who make them. This week, I am very lucky to be joined by my colleague, friend, and fellow associate at Goldenberg & Company PC, Ben Cowley. This episode is sort of a quasi-starter pack for filmmakers from a legal perspective. So we are tackling some of the most commonly asked questions that we get asked every day in our legal practice. We talk about whether you need to incorporate a single-purpose vehicle, what chain of title means, and how to make sure that yours is clean. We talk about clearance and clearance procedures and common mistakes that we see with that process. And we also get into insurance. Oh, what fun. So while we are both lawyers, please keep in mind that this is not legal advice. So please do not take any steps or refrain from taking any steps as a result of anything that you hear in this podcast. All right, without further ado, let's get into everything you wanted to know about entertainment law. Great. We're on. Great. Ben, welcome. Welcome to my podcast. How does it feel to be here? I should ask you that question. (laughs) You finally landed your white whale. (laughs) You're welcome. You finally (laughs) nabbed me after... Begging and pleading. Here we are. This is really exciting. Okay, so I thought for today's episode, because you are a great legal mind, we could help filmmakers get a better sense of the role that entertainment lawyers play in the process and what they need to do to get their film in tip-top shape. We're going to do kind of like a checklist, a legal checklist, if you will. Okay. Everything kind of like commonly asked questions of filmmakers. Okay, so first things first, what is chain of title? Okay, so chain of title, the phrase chain of title is actually super accurate and descriptive. It's literally a chain of ownership over the property that you're producing, right? So when we're dealing with a film, for instance, you're dealing with the underlying rights of the film, the copyright, the the intellectual property. And in order to produce the film, you have to own the film and you have to own all all of the rights that underlie that film. You need to own its copyright. So the chain of title is effectively a roadmap of how the intellectual property got from, you know, its point of conception all the way to actual production. If you conceptualize and develop a project and then produce it on your own, the chain of title is quite clear, right? So it's just essentially one document saying, you know, I'm Olivia Danilchuk. I own and created the the rights in and to this screenplay and all these development materials, and here we are. But oftentimes we have very convoluted and difficult chains of title because, for instance, you know, as many of your hundreds of thousands of listeners will know, a lot of films are based on uh, news articles or journals or books or 
any sort of other medium of entertainment. It, it, it originates there. And then there's this whole long chain of people, all these third parties acquiring the rights in and to that underlying property and developing it over time. And, you know, the, the property will start as a book, for instance, and then a writer maybe will acquire the rights or option the rights or you know, some other form of assignment or license will, will, will get those rights. And then beyond that, the writer will then assign those rights or option those rights to a producer and so on and so forth. So really, this is a long-winded way of saying the chain of title essentially spells out the story of how the property got from point A to point B mm-hmm. and all of A.1, A.2, A.3 in between. And what you need in order to actually produce and exploit and, you know, distribute a film is you need to show clean chain of title, which is essentially a clear story of, again, how the property got from point A to point B, showing that there's a real legitimate way that the ultimate final producer actually owns the rights. And, like, chain of title really can apply to not just film. There's chain of title for you know, real estate properties and whatever. Like, you cannot acquire the rights in and to a project if you're not acquiring them from the person who actually owns it. That was excellent. Really well said, Ben. So if I'm a producer or, you know, filmmakers who is interested in doing a project, what are some mechanisms of obtaining a clean chain of title? So I'm thinking here of, like, an option or an assignment. Okay, so, like... You mean from a from a documents perspective? Yes. Like, what do I what do I need to show a clean chain of title? I would say the three most common documents for proving a chain of title are you you've already alluded to them. There's an assignment, which typically is it's two friendly parties. There's no fee involved. It's just you and I are going to co-produce a film. Mm-hmm. The idea originated with me. I conceptualized it. And we agree amongst ourselves, okay, we're going to create a production company and we're going to do this together. Mm -hmm. So Ben, the individual, is going to just simply assign the underlying property to the Prodco. So that's done. Prodco is a production company. That is done through a simple assignment agreement. Typically, it can be, you know, as short as one page. And it effectively says, I, Ben Cowley, hereby assign all of the rights in and to this property over to... Corporation A, and Corporation A is, you know, here by the owner of the property. The other ways that this can be done is an acquisition agreement, which is essentially what the ultimate goal of an option agreement is. An acquisition agreement is exactly what it sounds like. It's a a purchase of the property. And the way that that differs from an option agreement is the option agreement is essentially a step towards uh, acquisition and includes and contemplates acquisition. But in advance of that or prior to that, there's, um, there's, there's an exclusive period for the, for the person who's optioning the grantee, not the grantor for the grantee to have the ability to acquire. So it sounds a bit confusing, but really it's not. It's essentially, I want to acquire this property, but in the meantime, I need to develop I need to develop the property. I need to see if I have proper financing. I need to see if I can build a team. So for this defined period of time, I'm going to be the only person in the world who has the right to actually acquire it. 
if, uh, you know, all of the uh, things that I need to line up and come in order actually line up and come in order, then I will acquire it via the purchase price that's set forth in the option agreement. And if I don't do that, then the option term eventually will lapse or expire, and then the rights will revert back to the grantor. Um, so those are really assignment agreement, acquisition agreement, option agreement are the three common ways for somebody or some company to acquire the underlying rights in into a property. Mm-hmm. Great. So in terms of life rights, which can be sometimes a bit of a hot topic. Exciting stuff. Yeah. What, I mean, it's difficult to know without specific context, but is there anything that you can say generally about when life rights are necessary? In a perfect world, you would always acquire life rights if it makes sense you know, for you commercially and financially because why not cover all of your bases? If there's someone who's living in the public sphere, there is a world where you don't necessarily have to acquire their life rights because their story is commonly told in the, you know, in the cultural zeitgeist. If there are aspects of a person's life that are commonly known and and sort of exist in the public domain, then not necessarily would you need to acquire life rights, right? Mm -hmm. Especially if, you know, that person has since deceased. Because the, the whole concept with life rights is if you don't have someone's life rights, they have a claim to invasion of their privacy, right? So if you're encroaching on that invasion to privacy, then really you don't actually have the right to be telling that person's story in any medium or form. Most typically, you would want to acquire life rights, full stop. Sometimes it's not possible, and there are tons of movies where you know, the biopics or what have you where, where life rights aren't actually acquired, but the writers and the producers are able to build a story based on commonly understood information. But having said that, it's always better to have the permission and the right to tell somebody's story because then, you know, you aren't beholden or restricted by, you know, that, that only public domain information. I would say that life rights are very good to acquire, especially, you know, in the context of telling a story of someone who isn't widely understood or commented on or reported on uh, in the public sphere. But that's a pretty uh, loaded question, and I think that's why my answer is going (laughs) on for so long, because I'm working this out in my head right now. That's an interesting question. No, I think that that, you gave some good insight. So, okay, so say you've now acquired the rights. You've got a clean chain of title, and you're looking to make this production. And you're thinking about whether or not you need to incorporate a single-purpose vehicle in order to, you know, facilitate this production. Hmm. What advice would you give to, you know, filmmakers who are deciding if they need a single-purpose vehicle versus if they don't? A corporation is always good because it creates a separate legal entity, mm-hmm. right? So from a from a liability perspective, parking parking the rights and the means of exploitation and, and all of that in one vehicle that is separate and apart from you, the person, uh, is most typically a good thing. Obviously, you know, we 
live and work in Canada where there's a tax credit regime. So the type of incorporation or the province of incorporation of your of your corporation uh, can matter in that respect, you know, vis-a-vis where you're going to be applying for tax credits, if you are applying for tax credits, what have you. So that's something that's important to bear in mind. And, you know, as you know, most of our clients, they make multiple productions and each production has its own incorporation. So the, the parent company will incorporate, you know, Movie X Inc., Movie Y Inc., Movie Z Inc. And what's, you know, nice about that also is that it keeps a clear demarcation between each project, right? And the, the rights, the rights, like going back to chain of title, it's very clear which company owns which rights, and you can produce with uh, with that information and knowledge and comfort in mind. That that's the typical approach. Yeah, I think it seems like almost like basic in some level, but I think it's like uh, can be a, a big question for people looking to incorporate because the 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 expense of incorporation is enough that. It gives you pause for, is this actually necessary? Well, not if you hire Goldenberg & Co. <laughs> professional corporation, because we are the best, <laughs> and our rates are super competitive. <laughs> but I think also with with corporations, like if you're talking about a tax credit, you really need to have a, a single-purpose vehicle in order to cleanly... It just makes everything proper. Exactly. Makes it a lot easier to track spending. Mm, Let's talk about clearance and how to approach E&O, errors and admissions, at the outset of filmmaking. Like, what are some things that you need to think about so that you don't run into trouble down the road? The most important aspect of errors and omissions is to understand that you need way more paper than you think you do. Mm. Um, And the reason I say that is because whenever you are dealing with any form of potential copyright issue or privacy issue, um, you need paper. You need a release, you need a license, you need a permission. Um, And, you know, walking into somebody's house and asking them if you can film there and then them saying yes, that's not good enough. And, and you know, your lawyer is not going to be happy with that. Your insurer definitely is not going to be happy with that. And your distributors are not going to be happy with that. Because there's nothing verifiable from that person's permission, right? So if, if we're using that example, you can walk into my house, ask if you can film in my, you know, living room, and... You make your movie and it's being reviewed by an errors and omissions insurance lawyer, and they're going to ask you, "Do you have Do you have a permission to film in this house?" Well, you'll say, "Yeah, I got verbal permission from the owner. He's such a cool, funny, nice guy. There's not going to be any issue with that." But maybe something happens in my life, and I become a not cool, funny, nice guy, or. Uh, there's something in the, in the shot in the film that I didn't think was going to be in there. There's a family photo in the background that you know is precious to me, and I don't want it being widely disseminated or what have you. And then my verbal permission is it's BS, right? So my outlook on 
Arizona missions, first and foremost, is that you need way more licenses and releases and permissions signed than you might otherwise think you need. And within that context, the license or the release or the permission is not just one line on a piece of paper saying, yeah, okay, that's cool with me. You can do that. There are all sorts of clauses that we look for in these agreements, most specifically because the insurers require that, right? So you need a set of reps and warranties. And obviously, you know, representations and warranties is like can be a one-hour discussion on its own, but it's essentially someone representing to you certain matters of fact. And those matters of fact are important because that's what clearly, you know, specifies that they actually have the right to allow you to do the thing that they're allowing you to do, right? So if you're going to, for example, film, you know, a piece of art that I've made, that release that I'm granting to you is going to explicitly say, I represent, Ben represents and warrants that he is the owner of, of the art and that no other permissions are required in order for Ben to, to grant you this permission to, to depict the art in your amazing movie. So reps and warranties, that's one. An indemnity is another. It's, and that sort of goes, it ties in with the reps and warranties because in the event that there's a breach of one of those reps and warranties, if, if my representation that the art is mine and then it comes to pass that it's not actually mine, I stole it you know, from a garage sale and then I'm passing it off as my own, if I breach that representation or, or, you know, it becomes Olivia's knowledge that it's not mine and then a third-party claim is brought, I'm indemnifying you against that third-party claim. You're, you don't have any sort of liability in connection with that claim. So that's important for lawyers and for insurance lawyers and for distributors. And then the third major sort of pillar of any sort of release form or license or, or permission is a waiver of injunctive relief. And essentially what that does is it's an explicit waiver of the grantor's right to bring a claim against you and ask a judge to, you know, grant an injunction against your film. And the way that film exploitation exploitation works is that it's, you know, widely broadcast and distributed across the world, right? And once it's out there, it's out there. So, and and not to mention, you have contractual obligations to your distributors and to your broadcasters. So, you know, practically speaking, you can see how if there's an injunction against your film that's already being broadcast in Canada and, you know, India and all across Europe and in, you know, any country around the world, if there's uh, an injunction against your film, then you're kind of screwed, right? So to have that waiver of injunctive relief, which is essentially the person doing away with that right, um, that's super vital in the context of film production and, more importantly, uh, errors and omissions insurance. Mm, that was a really well-said answer, Ben. A really long answer. No, I think that was great. No, that was really, really descriptive and informative. Great. And so if you could give, like, a laundry list of the typical releases that you're looking for, just so it can be top of mind, what would you say? Like, location releases, music releases? Well, 
Hold, hold on to your seats, because this stuff is <laughs> exciting. You got materials releases, which really is like a blanket release can apply to anything. Yeah. Right? So it can apply to a photograph, an art piece, a sculpture, a, a graffiti mural, uh, anything. Right? So you can use that. We also, Goldenberg and Company Professional Corporation, also provides sort of more tailored releases, right? So specific photograph release, film slash clip footage release, uh, artwork release, um, and things like that. And then, you know, outside of, you know, hard and fast materials, there's also appearance releases, which, you know, if you're filming a documentary and you're interviewing a subject, you will want to and need to have that subject sign an appearance release. And then there are, there are other sort of releases in that realm. There's, you know, blanket releases. If you're filming in a, in a theater and there's 450 people there, you're in all likelihood not going to be able to go around and get the permission from each of those people on a signed piece of paper. Um, so to have these blanket releases posted in conspicuous places throughout the theater so that everyone that's in the theater can read it, understand it, and make a decision. Um, that's very helpful. Mm-hmm. And that's sort of the common practice when you're doing that kind of filming. And then there's, there's you know, releases or licenses with respect to the music that you use in the film. You can't just pick a song and put it in your movie, right? You need to have the right to use that song. Um, and you need to have permission from the proper people that you could use that song. And then, you know, I, I alluded to it earlier, there's location releases. So when you're filming at any particular location, you should have the permission from the owner or an agent of the owner to actually film in that place. And location agreements, to me, are often interesting because... When you're filming in a home, there are also all sorts of other third-party materials that are present, right? So to the extent that you can have your location release grant you the right to film in that location, but also the right to film all of the signage and logos and, you know, all sorts of other third-party materials in that location, that is super because then you're really covering your ass. Yeah. So what are some common mistakes from filmmakers that you see a lot where they didn't get a release where they should have? Well, it's sort of like, you know, filmmaking is an art, right? Mm-hmm. Like, it's it's a creative medium, and creative people often don't think about the boring lawyerly aspect <laughs> of making film, right? So I think a big mistake that, that some people can make, um, especially you know, newer filmmakers who are just cutting their teeth, a lot of the times people people are like, oh, yeah, I have email confirmation that I can do that. I sort of was alluding to it earlier. Oh, yeah, he's my buddy. He told me that he would film for me. Or he told me that he would write this song to include in the, in the movie. But maybe the movie, you know, is unbelievably successful and the score in the movie is, is awesome. And this guy's like, well... Hold on, I like I didn't know that this was gonna happen. We don't have a signed composer agreement or a signed music license, and you're trading on my work. You know, now I'm bringing a claim against you. 
yeah, I don't, I don't, I'm not using this term in, in a negative way, but like the na- naivety of, of making a film and just trusting everyone. You know, m- my job as a lawyer uh, fundamentally is in conflict with m- who I am as a person because <laughs> I like to trust people um, and I do trust people. But the reason that you need contracts and agreements is not for when everything is hunky-dory and awesome. It's for, you know, the, those remote instances where uh, shit hits the fan because then in those instances you have a signed binding piece of paper that just tells you what the story is, you know? If, uh, if you and I have an agreement that says that I have the right to use your... Uh, graffiti art in my movie then then I have the right to use your graffiti art in my movie mm-hmm. right engaging with lawyers and engaging with documentation can sometimes seem daunting and you know you've been listening to me now for a while and it can also seem quite boring but notwithstanding the fact that it might be daunting or boring it's much more daunting and much more boring to not have an agreement in place and then to have to deal with it after the fact and go to court and litigate or not litigate because it's too expensive and just accept the fact that you're up shit's creek without a paddle. Yeah. Right? So to account for the worst case scenario while being, you know, blissfully hopeful that the worst case scenario is not gonna come is sort of you know, the approach that I like to take. Yeah. And I mean, we just saw this recently with one of our clients that because they had a release and they had a process of obtaining, you know, certain consents from participants that they were saved from what could have turned into a pretty contentious litigation. Totally. Situation. Because the document says, it it spells out the story. It says, I have the right to do this. You consent to that. I consent to this so on and so forth, this is what the story is. Exactly. And uh, there's a lot of value in that. And the hope of any lawyer is that, you know, you don't need to ever look back on the agreement because, you know, the relationship is such that it's it's working out and you guys have a yeah. good understanding of, of what the deal is. But in the event that there's any contention, you have a binding document that tells you what the answer is. Yeah. And I think another thing to also note is that this all this whole conversation extends in principle to anyone who contributes on the film. So even if they're, you know, a grip or a best boy, um, that they should be signing an agreement to make sure that chain of title, going back to the beginning of our conversation, is clear. And it's clear who ultimately owns the the copyright to the production because... I've heard that if you don't have a clear denotation of uh, copyright, the de facto um, rule is that the director owns the copyright. And that's obviously not a situation that you ever want to find yourself in. You want to make sure that it's clear that whoever, if it's the Prodco, whatever producer owns the company, that every agreement says that. Every single one of our clients, no matter who they are engaging, the agreement that they use to engage that human makes fundamentally clear that all of the results and proceeds of that person's work are owned by the producer, by our client, right? So you've sort of alluded to it, whether it's a a grip or it's, um, you know, 
any other crew member that's rendering services on set. If it's someone that you've hired to make a piece of jewelry uh, to be shot and included and depicted in your film, there needs to be a very clear assignment or grant of rights in into the results and proceeds of that work. Results and proceeds, you know, it's it's what it sounds like. If you hire me to write a poem, the results and proceeds of my work are the pro are the poem and, and any other thing that sort of comes out of that in that context. So yes, it's it's not just these appearance releases or materials releases or whatever. It's anyone that is rendering any form of you know, services in connection with the movie. Now, if someone is providing craft services and nothing's on camera and there's no creative input or whatever, sure, it's not necessary (laughs) because they're effectively catering food to the production staff. But all the production staff that are eating that craft food, you can bet your bottom dollar (laughs) that each of those people have signed an agreement that conveys the results and proceeds of their work to the producer. And if they haven't yet, go around that craft services table and just have everyone sign one while they're eating their lunch. Exactly. Preferably before. Exactly. (laughs) It's never too late. It's never too late. Um, So then let's just have a really quick discussion because I think that there's a lot of confusion about fair dealing in Canada and how it applies and, you know, the difference between fair dealing and fair use in Canada and, you know, yeah, how that applies to filmmakers. Well, fair and when it doesn't apply to filmmakers. Fair use is more colloquially used. Yeah. Um, but in Canada, we have fair dealing. Fair dealing is not just this blanket ability to use any third-party material with impunity. Fair dealing is effectively a last line of defense if you don't have clearance or permission from a third party to use their materials. So, you know, oftentimes we'll get clients, especially ones who are just starting out, um, and they'll send us a laundry list of third party materials that they use in their film. They say, oh, well, it's fair use. Well, no, it's not. Things aren't fair use. On occasion, if you are using third-party material without permission in the right way, we might suggest that you have a reasonable fair-dealing defense. That doesn't mean that someone won't bring a claim against you. That doesn't mean that there's no risk at all. But it means that in all likelihood, if somebody brings a claim against you in connection with your uh, use of their property without permission a judge will likely throw it out or, you know, this person will effectively just kick rocks. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, there's a whole list of, like, prescribed things (laughs) that uh, that make something, uh, you know, viable for for a fair dealing defense, but that also is, like, that's for a whole other podcast altogether. No, I... Like, it's a super... It's a super nuanced yeah. thing and to, to just like give an ant like we, you know we often have clients and you know this like they'll just be like is this fair dealing well it's like I don't know yeah it, it may it, maybe it is I think that you have like a reasonable claim to a defense here yeah. but also have you like exhausted every avenue to get the permission that you need or are you kind of just like grabbing this piece of material out of the ether and then 
hoping and praying that it's fair dealing, right? And then also to bear in mind that the the type of production that you're making will have an impact on your fair dealing defense um, because things like investigation or education or those are like categories of fair dealing that allow you to fall under that defense. So oftentimes in the context of documentary filmmaking, there's a little bit more wiggle room for a producer um, to use a fair dealing defense because investigatory nature of a documentary. So a very difficult question to answer like in one fell swoop and I can read about it every day and then still find like little nuancey things um but there you have it yeah no I think that that's exactly the point right it's like it's not to be relied on lightly it's an extremely complicated area of law that in Canada we don't have a great deal of precedence on and so you're not going to get very many lawyers who are confident saying fair dealing Mm -hmm. at a base level you have to have present a really really strong case and the majority of films will not meet that threshold especially when you're talking about scripted content yes generally i would say like on balance never going to fall into fair dealing it's also important to bear in mind that if you're using something um without permission oftentimes many distributors or financiers will require you to have E&O insurance coverage with zero exclusions. Mm -hmm. And if that's an obligation uh, placed on you, then you need to ensure that your insurance doesn't have any exclusions. And you're going to have exclusions if you have certain items or things or materials that are used in your film that you don't have permission to use. And when the insurer is aware of that, they're going to place an exclusion on uh, that item, which means that in the event of a third-party claim, your insurance coverage isn't going to apply in respect of that thing. Mm -hmm. Great, great. So have I missed anything then? Do you feel like you have any other advice for um, new filmmakers or...? Well, I don't know. I think, honestly, like the best advice is to... Consult with someone who has experience in this realm and to consult with a lawyer. Um, You know, at our firm, we're always happy to have consultation phone calls with people and, you know, give non-legal advice. Um, But I I think it's important to remember that, as unfortunate as it is to say, you would not be well advised to go into filmmaking with complete ignorance. And it's, it's better to have a few little short-term headaches than to have one really shitty, bad headache. Um, so to do your homework and to get the paperwork in place and to consult with a lawyer and consult with people who have experience, I think that you know it's one of those like short-term pain, long-term gain sorts of things. Yeah, you don't want to learn the lessons the hard way, that's for sure. Exactly. Cool. You have to now recommend a piece of Canadian content. Do you have anything in mind? Current. It doesn't it doesn't matter if it's like something you watched this week or something that you like is your all-time favorite. Like Trailer Park Boys is awesome. <laughs> Such a cop-out. It is, but like it's also amazing and it also <laughs> at least to me it's sort of like like, without Trailer Park Boys, there's no Letter Kenny. Yeah. It's sort of, like, within that same realm of 
of comedy and it puts a spotlight on Canadian well like exaggerated Canadian culture and that has been sort of widely accepted outside of Canada which is cool I mean we work on a ton of great films there are some films that our clients have done that have been very enjoyable to watch. Anything you particularly want to give a shout out to? Um, no, because <laughs> <laughs> if I say one and not the other, maybe it will create issues. It's and like picking your favorite child. It's impossible. Exactly. Exactly. All of them. You like all of them equally. Exactly. <laughs> well, at the moment, I only have one child, and she is my favorite for now. Well, I feel like you can't say that since the other one's like. The, the other one is in utero. Yeah. So it, that one, and I don't know whether it's a boy or a girl or, you know, the specific date that it's going to be born. So for now, my my daughter is my favorite until <laughs> around September 6th. Good answer. Good answer. Okay. Thanks so much, Ben. That's it. You want to do more? If you want more, we come back every single Wednesday. So be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. If you do have any questions about the topics that we discussed or topics that we didn't discuss, do feel free to reach out to us at Goldenberg & Company PC.